Welcome to the Voices from the Road podcast, episode number five, with me, Valerie Singleton. This time round, we'll shortly offer an extended discussion featuring three people who were involved in the pioneering days of the National Driver Offender Retraining Scheme that began, under various names in different locations, in 1991. But before we hear all about that, we'll head back to 1966. A year of English football success with their 4-2 win over Germany in the World Cup final. A year of Welsh tragedy with the Abervan disaster when a slag heap from the local coal mine slid down Merthyr Mountain killing 28 adults and 116 children. Batman made its debut on American television as did Star Trek and the top 10 cars of the year included the Vauxhall Viva, the Hillman Hunter and the Ford Cortina Mark II. The Heinkel bubble car was definitely not in the top 10, but it was one means of transport considered by Alan Lewis from Ulverston in the southern part of the Lake District. In his early adult years, Alan went away to university on a sandwich degree course that required him to spend equal amounts of time studying at Salford University and working in a shipyard at Barrow. Well, the trouble was he had started courting a young lady. And when he was dispatched for a spell of work in rugby, he needed some transport to give the relationship a chance. We'll let him take up the story. In my early years, I went away to university. So in my second year, I I, I was seconded as part of the training uh, down to AI uh, machines division at rugby. And I was transportless and trying to figure out how I would uh, get home of a weekend. A long way to thumb in those days. So we looked around and I I, passed my test a couple of years previously, but never, uh, well, I'd owned one car, an old comma cob that was a rust bucket that dropped to bits. But uh, anyhow, that's another story. Uh, So we eventually saw this bubble car, a Heinkel bubble car. I can't remember the year of it, but uh, it, it was long in the tooth when I bought it and had supposedly been refurbished by a guy in Dalton, which is a place between Ulverson and Barrow. And I can't really remember how much I paid for it. It wouldn't have been much money because I didn't have a lot of money being a poor, impoverished student. So uh, anyhow, we bought this bubble car and uh, we tootled around in it locally. I think the first time I went out in it, the brakes failed and nearly knocked somebody down on a zebra crossing. But uh, we got that sorted out. And I would say, right, Okay, darling, um, see you next weekend. I'm off down to, to rugby in, in this, this Heinkel bubble car. In those days, the uh, M6 ended at uh, Cannock, I think it was, on the, the A5. So I, I set off bright and early, got onto the, the M6, and when juggernauts are passing you uphill, you think, mm, not going so fast here. I had my foot full, fully down, and the bubble car itself had a like a, a bobbin for the accelerator pedal uh, and, and had some fairly thin-soled shoes on and I was starting to get cramp and all sorts of stuff. And halfway down the, the journey, the, uh, the gearbox decided to seize into the second gear. A motorcycle engine, I can't remember what CC it was, uh, stuck in second gear, didn't equate to many miles per hour. So by the time I dropped off the M6 onto the A5, it was getting dark. And it was probably about eight hours into the journey. And uh, I was going along the A5 and it, it was getting dark. I felt like a, somebody in a bomber because the 
canopy of the bubble car and the sky above me. I thought I was a pilot in a, in a bomber. <laughs> but and anyhow, it, I, I put the, the headlights on for the first time. I don't think I'd use it locally. And these headlights <laughs> shone up in the sky uh, when they were on normal beam straight at the traffic ahead. I had to put it on to high beam so that it would go up into the air and go over the head of the oncoming traffic. Anyhow, I eventually got down to, to, to my digs in, in rugby. Probably was 11, just over 11 hours. And oh. I just wished I had a, a brick to put on this accelerator pedal, which was biting into my foot. So I was doing a degree in electrical engineering, so I, I couldn't claim to be a mechanical type of guy. And <clears throat> the next day after I'd had my, my day at, uh, at uh, work, came back and took the sump off the, uh, the, the bubble car, which was stood outside the digs and it was just full of bits of metal. So I put, <laughs> put the sump back on and advertised the bubble car for sale and it was sold to some enthusiast and that was the end of it. So fortunately for the rest of the time I was down in rugby, I managed to team up with somebody else who had a car who was coming backwards and forwards to the Lake District. So my courtship could continue by, uh, by that mechanism. I look back at it in envy when I see the, the price of a fully refurbished Heinkel nowadays, eight, eight and a half grand or something, something like that. In fact, we've got a motor museum not far from us, the Lakes Motor Museum at uh, Backborough, which is a, a quite a well-known and a very, very good uh, museum. And I'm pretty sure they have got a Heinkel. It might be an Isetta, but they've got a, a Heinkel uh, bubble car in, in there. I, I was what at the time, 20, you know, full, full of stupid ideas that you could chug up and down the, uh, the M6 in, <laughs> in this three-wheeled uh, low, low CC engine motorbike uh, bubble car. So uh, it would be nice to have it now as a memento. Alan Lewis remembering his Heinkel bubble car. Oh, and in case you were wondering, the courtship succeeded, the pair married, and 56 years later, they're still going strong. So now for the rest of this edition, we'll be in 1991. Scientists at CERN in Switzerland released the World Wide Web and established the first ever website. The Cold War ends with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the South African Parliament repeals its Population Registration Act, a key component of apartheid. In the UK, police and road safety professionals are considering some of the recommendations included in the 1988 North Review of Road Traffic Law. An important component is the call for more education instead of punishment for drivers who have committed certain offences. We've managed to reunite three people who were instrumental in laying the foundations for the National Driver Offender Retraining Scheme. They are Neil Cunliffe from Lancashire County Council, Karen Stringer from Greater Manchester Police, and Ian Aspinall from Devon and Cornwall Police. How did they go about creating the opportunity for drivers to avoid prosecution? What support did they receive from government and what were the main barriers to progress? Let's find out as we hear all about those very first steps in a brand new era of road safety. Hi, my name is Neil Cunliffe. I've been in road safety for well over 40 odd years. Hi, I'm Karen Stringer. So I joined Greater Manchester Police in 1978, June 1978. I was with GMP for 40 years and now with UK Road still on the road safety front. 
Hello, good afternoon. My name is Ian Aspinall. Uh, I'm a former police officer, uh, having served in Devon and Cornwall Police and in Greater Manchester, formerly before that. I was involved in the uh, driver diversion schemes from the very, very first day. Okay, and where did we get all this from? Crikey, we seem to have gone back on an awful long time. So sad, really. I can remember really back in the early days, 1972-74, under the Road Traffic Acts, Section 8, we should be looking at delivering more education to drivers. But yet it never happened until we met certain characters like yourself. I can remember it clearly to this day when we were looking at driver improvement. But Ian, hey, you know more about driver improvement than any other person I've ever known. Well, yeah, what it was, I'd been a uh, uniform patrol inspector at Truro, having served a lot of my career in uh, in road patrol in Greater Manchester and in Devon and Cornwall. And uh, I was asked to transfer back into operations, uh, which includes road traffic. Uh, and I did that back in 1991. As always with these jobs, when you pick up a new job, one of your bosses comes along to you, shoves something under your nose and says, I'll read it that and see what you think. It was actually the Road Traffic Law Review or the North Report uh, of 1991. Whilst that report in itself led to lots of creative innovations uh, within it. Uh, it was a thorough review, probably the last thorough review they've ever done of road, tra road traffic law. Something in the small print going on for what, from what Neil says, uh, Dr. Peter North, or Sir Peter North as he's known now, wrote uh, this, this fragment of an idea. And it was only a few lines that actually said it may be uh, in the best interest of the offender rather than the offence if we could divert some of these people to a course of re-education rather than punishment or words to that effect. But that uh, that was kept on the shelf and uh, it, it, never, it never came to fruition because Dr North's view was that it would actually be part and parcel of a court disposal option so it would be run by the criminal justice system. And as I say, a lot, it happens a lot of this stuff with these uh, legislative suggestions it lay on the shelf and the boss came to me and said do you like that idea i said yeah. he said can you, do you think you can do anything with it so i said yeah f i think we did and anyway i started to do some some consultations with uh, with cps and uh, on with devon county council peter gimber who neil knows very very well who's neil's counterpart and uh, we cobbled together the idea of uh, the well it was called the drive improvement scheme so where were you up to, Karen, with all this? We've, we've jumped 20 years and actually we'd achieved very little. Although local government and local authorities were obsessed with cycling courses, pedestrian training kids. Where were the police up to? I think Ian touched on a, a key issue there when the North report came about. And I do remember that time. And I think I, I remember one of the comments. It's not uh, perfect, but... When Peter North said a new driver is given a license to drive a lethal weapon and uh, we looked at it from that perspective, Transport for Greater Manchester or as they were the local authorities at the time, were very keen to get involved in education, uh, educating drivers and we were very much keen to offer re-education rather than uh, enforcement and give people a chance to rethink, re-educate them, get them to think differently. And so it came from there, but you guys gave us the uh, the will to do it by giving us the, the tools, basically. You came along with the tools and, and we ran with the job. Well, we had, a, we had a massive problem, Karen, that, you know, back in the early days with 7,500 deaths and 350,000 KSIs, killed and serious injuries, and, you know, we, we had to do something. Uh, and credit to the other organisations like ROSPA, the IEM and all the other groups. 
but they were all preaching to the converted and what we were trying to do is say let's stop preaching to the converted let's see if we can get involved with these other people drivers must be one of the hardest groups of people to ever get to and if you want to offend somebody i think you'd agree and just say your driving's rubbish you read people really do get upset about it so from your perspective Ian, you had driver improvement on the go which was fantastic for us in local authorities we had, we we just took it hook line and sinker it was brilliant like i said i've got to give credit where it's due it wasn't just a police-led initiative although we were the more or less the lead authority on it because we've got the uh, prosecution or diversion from prosecution imperative i've got to sing the praises of devon county council uh, i mentioned peter they were a very 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 visionary devon county council were uh, as uh, neil will probably give testimony to that and uh, and and the cps is the, the crime prosecution service in devon they were very very proactive so we had a, we had a we basically had a tripartite arrangement blessed in heaven and so we we yeah so uh, as i said columpton traffic unit uh, a little town in devon uh, where i was a police traffic inspector i sat down there and uh, originally it was only cases of collisions that came to uh, to throw because the, the scheme was only meant to deal with people who had a, a a collision a minor bump and made a minor error of judgment and the first courses were were uh, in 1991 and we referred uh, offending motorists uh, or as, or as the county council likes to call them, clients, to Devon County Council. Uh, they were offered an opportunity to pay for, go on one of these courses, pay for it, Devon County Council put the course together uh, and if they if they successfully completed it, there was no pass or fail, it means that they wouldn't get a summons for driving without due care and attention. And it was You're incredibly lucky though, Ian, you set a pace then for everybody else. And I think a lot of authorities took on board uh, driver improvement. What they hadn't taken on board was speed awareness. And to my credit and my own authority, working with Lancashire then, you started to see masses of research come out all about driver behaviour, driver attitudes. And the one I, I always loved the best was from Stradlin and Parker because people understood it. And it was a simple case that people suffer from lapses, errors and violations. And this was so easy to understand and get people to look at and say, well, which category do these people sit in? Then we had a problem that we could design courses till you know, we were blue in the face. And we had courses all over the country. They were all over the place. And how did we consolidate them? And for you, Karen, you've got all these police forces and we were bringing these partnerships on board to, to look at other road safety measures, especially speed awareness. How the heck did we get them all together? That became a real challenge for us. So I don't know how you went on with it in the police though, Karen. Well, we, we were very much guided by, uh, as it was then, uh, when did Endor's come about? Because it must have been that time that, that taught us to get our act together and do the same thing and be regulated, really. Well, yeah, what it was, Karen, is, is Endos is a concept. It's just, it's basically it's an acronym, isn't it, for the National Driver Offender Retraining Scheme. It just happens to sound like endorsement, Endos. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm blessing that was a Jerry Mooreism. Um, the other thing with this lot, you have to have political support. Uh, uh, the Department for Transport, and I remember the meeting very clearly when we had a first, what we call a steering group meeting in the DFT in London. They sat around the table, they knew very little about it, and they were very uncomfortable about it because they'd missed it. And uh, and uh, But that's history. That was just right at the very beginning. I'll also give credit to my ACC, John Alban. The thing is with police forces, is uh, it's like herding sheep sometimes to, to get police forces to agree and collaborate on national 
personal initiatives. Uh, unless there's a big finger wagging exercise uh, and it's mandated by the Home Office, etc., 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 a lot of police forces they, they do their own thing. This was unique insofar as the police forces actually started to collaborate with it. However, again, I'll give a lot of credit here because it was driven back to front originally. The local authorities uh, through the LASOA. It's the local authority, Road Safety Officers Association, and Neil, uh, and, uh, and and latterly they, they formed an organisation called what we called uh, NADIP. And this association, yeah, association of National Driver Improvement Providers, yeah. they formed their own, and they they went uh, and banging on the doors of the local police forces, saying, "Hey." Devon and Cornwall are doing this. We want to do it. We can't do it without you. Get your act into gear. And the rest is history. They actually cajoled police forces into joining. Yeah, we, we had an elephant in the room that we've not mentioned. This one's for you, Karen. The, the bit that we all hated, the camera, the bit that brought these people to the forefront. Um, and, you know, we were, we were you know, avoiding it like the plague in some cases because... You know, it was the cash cow of the century, wasn't it? Every newspaper wanted to condemn us, you know. The fact that they were saving lives was incredible. And even public acceptance was good. No, there's, there's much more acceptance of them now. In fact, it's almost the opposite now that the public are saying that they're aren't enough or they're not working, you know. They know that the cameras on the street are not working because there's no money to keep them going. But I think the consistency of approach for the courses came about because of the speed cameras, because the speed cameras brought the volume. And when the police understood that that consistency and the consistency of the back office, because I was chair of the national user group then of the back office user group. So that was my job to collectively to get every back office to basically do the same thing, approach it in the same way, make course offers in the same way for the relevant courses. And so the cameras really pushed us to become regulated. I think that's probably the time that that happened. Neil, if I can just say something, though, from, from my point of view, because I was obviously nearer to inner sanctum of the police service. And these cameras, uh, the you know, because of hypothecation and netting off, which for those who don't know what that means, it means the money goes from the cameras back to the police forces and the local authority partnerships who generated it so they could fund the business scheme. However, these cameras were springing up everywhere. And a lot of people were getting caught by these cameras. A lot of them would never have even been stopped by the police because the police used a lot of discretion that I can speak for myself, you know, cameras changed all that. So lots and lots and lots of people were being, you know, criminalised because it is a criminal offence because it's through the criminal justice system. Uh, and I think, you know, it was very uncomfortable for the politicians because Neil, uh, Karen, you may agree with this. They got these cameras, but there was no exit strategy for it. None at all. It was just nail, 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 nail. And the press were vitriolic about all these people getting done for next to nothing. It was a, it had to be done, though. Anyway, Speed Awareness came along. I remember the conversation with you, Neil, when you said, what are you reading about Speed Awareness? I said, you know what? Use the module out to the driver improvement scheme and develop that. And you pioneered that in Lancashire, Neil, for us. You brought Speed Awareness about, not me. You did it. You led You led the field on that one. Oh, but it was to convince a politician every time I went down to Westminster... You just might as well bang your head on a brick wall. But the one thing they really wanted to know is, where was your evidence? And, you know, I was lucky. I had a great boss who really loved data. Uh, and he just said, right, let's bang loads of research into see how courses 
will work. And we, we ran the first initial courses with Michelle, Dr. Michelle Meadows from Manchester University. And it was absolutely dire. The results were so bad, it was untrue. What we'd always done is actually achieve is to upset an awful lot of people in a room. But we learned massively from that research of how to construct the courses. And we were lucky further on, we had people like Dr. Fiona Filan who came on board and did massive more research. And you know, that drove us in a direction which made it so easy for us then Ian to start saying, we've got the courses. We could go to Karen and say, listen, we've got everything we need to do. So, you know, the impact was superb. It was getting the results. The really good news was, it was slowing drivers down. And even after three months, it was getting to a stage where drivers were still retaining that information. And Ian, I think you'll remember the story of the lady in the airport who said, I did one of those courses. I have no idea what it was about and then spent an hour telling us exactly what it was all about. Yeah, it's great. So, Karen, Karen, one of the things that, that um, you know, I, I were all right. I was outside of uh, the inner sanctums of police forces. We just came around and sold the product, but it was down to you and your team uh, and, and many others like you across the country to get your colleagues and your, you know, your uniformed police officers to buy into this. Uh, so what impact did it have on your working practices and, and how difficult was it to get everybody, uh, you know, locally uh, to buy into what you were doing? I think certainly from an operational policing perspective, it, it gave uh, some light relief to officers, certainly traffic officers, because over the years they just declined and declined. There was the support there to keep road traffic enforcement going. There was very, I mean, it depended on which chief constable was in at the time on whether we had the support for traffic enforcement. Uh, but generally there was great, uh, support for it. So for the back office, it was a huge, huge impact for back office. We weren't ready for the sort of volume that was going to come through as a result of camera enforcement. And the fact that we could divert these offenses through to courses. And in such a uniform fashion, you know, with the right systems in place, um, it worked, worked like an absolute dream. I mean, you're never going to convince all of the public to support you. You know, that never happens. But I saw over the years, as people started to go on the courses and you got feedback from the benefit that they felt from the courses, that we started to shift the public view more in our direction for, to be supportive rather than just at the outset, as you say, they, they just absolutely hated us, didn't they? Hated cameras, hated the police enforcement. One of the things that um, always amazed me, uh, you know, you'll always get it, uh, and I'm not going to name and shame, but you leave it to your imagination. Certain certain uh, newspapers, they they were they, they, the only thing they could latch onto to uh, denounce it was the money side of this uh, of the equation. Nobody ever came forward and says these courses are rubbish. They cheated the money. It was the only newsworthy story that they that they they latched onto was about the money changing hands. It was a cash cow. Police forces were milking it. Well, you know what? I was stung. Well, who pays for this? It can't come out of the taxpayers. It can't come out of the public purse uh, and use it use the old um, adage you know the polluter pays and that's why we actually set a reasonable fee for the cost of the course non-profit making but just cost recovery 
that's what we did. And, and we could I just keep... mention about the cameras themselves? What what a lot of the public didn't know because the press would never mention this because it's not newsworthy. To place a static camera on the street, there had to be, correct me if I'm wrong, at least three people killed in that in that uh, in that area. At least three people yeah, killed. The data, the data changed dramatically on where you could place or where you you know you could have your cameras. Uh, and in the very early days when we brought the cameras in, you know, the Department for Transport, as it was then, you know, had a very big specific list of what you could and couldn't do. And if it didn't meet the criteria, they were telling you to take them out. Now, that criteria got sort of watered down over the years and we got the cameras in place. But there's still a criteria for using them and making sure they're working effectively. And, you know, we've never gone back and rechecked them. We just know that they're actually doing the job. Because the one thing that we have got, and I did look at the statistics really quite recently, a bit awkward with the pandemic in 2021. But, you know, when you're down to 1,500 KSIs or killed and serious injured, as against where we were back in 72, hey, guys, we, we've moved an awful lot. And, yeah, the engineering, you can't stop the engineering. That's helped. The fact we've got fantastic cars now helped again. But there's still that one problem, and that's in the individual that sits behind that steering wheel. And they still have control of those vehicles. So, you know, we've got to keep pushing on. And I know we're getting a bit old and out of it now, but I still keep pushing at every opportunity to say, you know, road safety, education, training, publicity is still one of the best things we ever got involved with. I don't know how you feel about it, Ian. Well, I just think if it, I look back, you know, you know, with uh, with fond vision, we, you know, we've changed the world, haven't we? That's an absolute thing. You know, we we have changed the world for for for, for the better. Ethically, these people don't get up in the morning to commit offences. Most of them don't, because if they do, they go to court. Uh, I think um, it's ethically, it ticks all the boxes. So, quite an achievement for all of us together. So, tell you what, Ian, I agree absolutely wholeheartedly with everything you said. We put a lot of effort in, but we got a tremendous amount out of it, and I hope. That you know, people that are going to listen to this will think, yeah, actually, I've done one of those. Everybody I asked, I said, you know, I speak, oh, yeah, I've done one of those. That they still think about it, they still get something from it. And actually, we may have actually saved some lives somewhere down the road, which for me is the big outcome. And back at the outset, what was really important is that we had. Um, we had targets, we had government targets that we had to achieve. And I remember together with Josie Ride, originally, you know, working with Andisp and in road safety for many years, uh, God bless her. The day that we celebrated because we hit the target of 50% reduction in child road deaths in Greater Manchester. We don't have those targets now and I feel that that's something that we're, we're lacking that we used to do and that was a real achievement. Yeah, I'd agree with that, Karen. I looked at a lot of the targets and I looked at a lot of the KSIs now. And, you know, we've still got big problems. We've still got problems with pedestrians, cyclists, vulnerable road users. But, hey, we're moving towards change again, aren't we? Do you know but what, I don't people? Think we, we, there'll be nothing as good, I don't think, and nothing as inventive of what uh, we actually created. Yeah, I think we left a brilliant lasting legacy. Uh, it's been brilliant to work with you. It's been something that uh, a fabulous opportunity for me personally. I got a lot of personal achievements out of it. Well, it's over to somebody else now and develop it and take it on way beyond me. You heard there the voices of Ian Aspinall, Neil Cunliffe and Karen Stringer discussing the earliest days of road traffic education schemes for drivers in 1991. 
and it brings us to the end of this latest episode in the Voices from the Road podcast. I'll be back next time with another selection from our podcast archive, but for now, from me, Valerie Singleton. Stay well. Goodbye. Goodbye.